research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, this is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. Uh, certainly horrific things going on in the Middle East. Our prayers are there uh, for the people of Israel and uh, other innocent victims. We're going to talk today, however, uh, about something that's closer to home, and that is the speaker's race. Now, Eric, let's assume for a minute that you are a member of Congress. Uh, I'm going to say from the great state of Alabama. How, how's that? Because of my literacy rate? Yeah, or, yeah. Okay. Just other cultural <laughs> tendencies. It's unclear why you've chosen. To no, I just, th- I just think Alabama, it's a neighboring state. It's a wonderful state. But let's assume you're a member of Congress and you're looking for somebody to be the Speaker of the House. What qualities are you looking for in a candidate? Yeah. I think you're thinking like Abraham Lincoln, right? These, yeah. These, these incredible statesmen, statesmen, good yeah. leadership, a comprehensive understanding of the relevant subject matter, those types of things. Is that not what we typically do when we pick speakers? Well, you know, that would be the hope. And some of them have had those qualities in the past. But today we're going to talk about the dirty underside of the speaker's race uh, and how this has really uh, informed the entire Congress, how leadership positions are chosen, because we have the sense that, you know, hey, we're going to pick this guy to be the chairman of the Senate Agricultural Committee because he's a farmer and he actually knows something about farming. Uh No. That's oftentimes not how it happens. So we're going to describe the ecosystem and we're going to explain why this is important. And it's really a a race that is formulated in a way that a lot of people don't realize. When you talk about ecosystem, you think about what are the key ingredients that sustain life forms. And in Washington, D.C., it's quite simple. That is money. And that's what drives everything in Washington, D.C. That's why the person that's in charge of the agriculture commissioner, the agriculture committee doesn't have to be, doesn't even have to necessarily spell farming, right? It's just somebody that has to be able to raise a lot of money. uh, And this is how power becomes corrupted because then it's not about making good policy decisions. It's about doing the things that you're beholden to the people who gave you money to be in that position in the first place. That's right. This is, this is the dark side and it applies to both political parties. It absolutely does. And we're going to talk about how much money is involved in being elected speaker and what happens when those speakers then decide who's in charge of the various committees. And you called it the underside. I would push back. I would say it's actually like the leading edge because it's it's not (laughs) actually a a secret. It's an open secret in Washington, D.C. You wrote a book about it 10 years ago. Yeah, it's the underside in the sense that I think a lot of people outside of the beltway aren't aware of it. Uh, We've certainly highlighted it. But a key component of this is their ability to raise money. And that's what we want to talk about today. So Let's talk about numbers. If you are the Speaker of the House, you're expected to raise how much money? So in 2017, a former member of Congress, Ken Buck, published a book. Current member of Congress. He's still in Congress. He's still in Congress. Yes, he well, is. That's think, right? You know, it's, yeah. it's obviously a very notable member of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's one of the ones that voted against McCarthy, I believe. Oh, really? Yes. So he wrote this book. And I think, and this is actually, I think you have to give these Freedom Caucus guys some credit 
on several different things. Because part of the reason why they didn't want to vote for Kevin McCarthy in the first place is they said, hey, we came to Washington, D.C. because we actually want to make a difference. We actually want to like enact policy and the way things are done now. We'll talk about the influence that money's had. Like you don't actually get to be a member of Congress. You show up, you vote how you're told to vote. You kind of go back to your office and you raise money. And that's essentially what happened. But to answer your question, current member of Congress, Ken Buck, wrote a book that said uh, if you wanted to be in charge of a committee, you had to raise $1.2 million. And if you're a Republican House speaker, you're supposed to raise $20 million. Yeah. Now, Nancy Pelosi, according to a report last year from Punchbowl News, expected to raise $31 million. Yep. Yep. And Democrats have to raise one point eight. Yeah. And so and, and this is very important to keep in mind. This is not for their own campaigns. They, you've got to raise money for your own reelection and, and you're on your own to do that. This is actually raising money for the political party. It's either the uh, Republican uh, congressional committee or the Democrat congressional committee. Uh, so this is above and beyond. Uh, and these are basically what they call party dues, right? Or it's a price list and they have different committees that have different financial responsibilities. And I remember when we reported on this, um, we asked a, a former member of Congress about the Veterans Affairs Committee, which pretty important. We've got a lot of veterans, a lot of issues that are being dealt with. Was it Ken Buck? It was not Ken Buck. <laughs> <laughs> it was another member of Congress who shall remain nameless, but he's uh, was from the Midwest. He's not in Congress anymore. And he said, oh, the Veterans Affairs Committee, that's a C-list committee. And I said, what do you mean C-list? He said, well, you can't extort a lot of money. You can't raise a lot of money uh, from veterans. Uh, it's not like financial services, which regulates Wall Street and the banking industry, where it's a target-rich environment for raising money. So a lot of people don't want to go to Veterans Affairs because it's hard to raise money, and you're not expected to raise a lot of money when you're sitting on that committee. But the numbers are really astronomical. As you said, Punchbowl News pointed out uh, that um, Nancy Pelosi was expected to raise $31 million. She's been the, the Democrat leader in the House for a very long time. And one of the reasons that she has been is she is an incredible fundraiser. I mean, that's one of her qualities. And of course, Speaker McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy of California, a lot of people wondered, well, why did he become Speaker? He also uh, is an incredibly good fundraiser. And one of the criticisms that has been leveled against certain members of Congress, like Jim Jordan, I love Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan does not like to raise money. Uh, he's not a big fundraiser. So it's going to be interesting to see who the next speaker is coming in, whether they're going to embrace that role, whether they're going to focus on fundraising, which is the expectation, or all that policy stuff that really matters. And I kind of hope they focus on the policy stuff. So does the fact that Jim Jordan is saying, hey, I'm willing to be considered Speaker of the House suggest to your mind that he's willing to start raising more money? Or does it suggest that they're saying, hey, listen, imagine a world where the people that are in charge of at least House Republicans, now Democrats, you do what you want, but imagine a world in which House Republicans, we actually are about policy and we're actually about ethics and we're you know we got the oversight committee that's investigating things is it possible because i think this is what the house freedom caucus members are sort of allegedly standing for is we want to change the way washington works because washington right now is fundamentally broken yeah yeah exactly we want we want to pick leaders that are going to be focused and, and fixated on policy now one of the reasons that these speakers do raise a lot of money is the theory is it gives you leverage over people in your caucus um, in other words, you go out and raise a boatload of money for your leadership pack, and then you dole out campaign donations to Republicans that might be in tough races or having trouble raise money. And supposedly that's going to kind of help you out. The irony is that it didn't 
work out that way for Kevin McCarthy. In fact, some of the people of the eight Republicans who voted with Democrats to undermine him, he gave them money in their races and then they ended up voting against him. So the money doesn't always work. But this is the hope. I mean, we recognize the reality that you need money to win elections and campaigns, um, although it's not the determining factor that it always seemed to be. Uh, but you need to have that money. But on the other hand, if it becomes all about raising money, uh, it distracts you and takes you off the focus of what you're supposed to be doing, which is like Congress actually passing budgets for things rather than continuing resolutions. And I just don't think they have the time if they're raising money all the time to focus on policy, which is what they should be looking at. They actually don't have time to focus on policy, which is why they actually changed the calendar and the schedule in Washington, D.C. So they would have more time and we'll give you specifics on that. But just to go back to the idea of party dues specifically, like you're not joking. And one of the things I'm very proud of that we did in extortion, which again, came out over 10 years ago, is we had a friend who was a fundraiser and so they agreed to, because we told, her, told them what we were working on, they agreed to take pictures of the dues list in the NRCC office. So we And got, tell them where, the, where that was. It's on the wall. So, it's, so <laughs> I am not familiar with this, but I guess it's an old school practice like at country clubs. If you hadn't paid your dues at a country club, <laughs> right. they would put your name up on the wall like this guy. Don't give him a tea time. <laughs> right? <laughs> because because he he's in a rear. No, it's a, rear, it's a right. real thing. Right. Well, that's what they would do. But they would have the list of everyone whose name, every member of Congress, what committee you were in, and how much you were expected to raise and what your status was. And that's actually what Punchbowl published last year, the the equivalent of that. But we took pictures of that, of the Republicans, and we traded with a 60 Minutes producer to get the Democrat list. And so that's how we got both lists in the book. And and to your point, the the four most important committees, uh, appropriations, energy and commerce, financial services, and ways and means, those guys currently... They've transferred more than $5.2 million to the NRCC and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Uh, and it's and what's allowed to do is it's, it's unlimited. You yeah. can transfer as much money as you'd like to. There is no cap on it. Yeah. But some people have even said, hey, the amount of money I raise for these things, it doesn't even show up in campaign finance reports, which is why there's transparency concerns. Yeah. But they take it very seriously. Like Thomas Massey, uh, the representative from Kentucky, current member of Congress, I just yeah. point that out. I got one, one for two. <laughs> <laughs> but he said they will literally stuff reminders in his pocket when he's on a floor <laughs> vote. Like, bro, you owe us money. <laughs> Who's in favor of the energy grid? Wait, no, wait, you owe us $500,000. <laughs> but that's how Washington is right now. Yeah. Remember that really old movie? I think it was from the 80s, Repo Man, about the guy that was supposed to repossess cars. old movie. Yeah, it's a very old, but it, it reminds you of that, right? Like it's, hey, you're in arrears. I mean, I don't know if they're going to strip them of their committee, but you may not get that committee assignment. And it's important to point out those four committees you mentioned, appropriations, energy and commerce, financial services, ways and means. Why are those committees the best fundraisers? Because they have maximum leverage over very powerful industries. Wealthy industry. Exactly. So appropriations, that's like where all the spending from Congress is supposed to go. So defense contractors, health insurance companies, everybody, everybody has something at appropriations. Energy and commerce, big oil, renewable energy, you know, the Commerce Committee, anybody, any of the large corporations or medium-sized corporations have matters before that committee that, that are important. Financial services, Wall Street, private equity. And then finally, ways and means, they're the ones that actually determine the order in which things are done, uh, things like tax policy, et cetera. So I think one of the myths in D.C., we've talked about this before, is that 
all these outside special interests are just, you know, clamoring to throw money at members of Congress, that this is like a bribery scenario. It's like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. That's a really old movie with Jimmy Stewart, where, you know, these politicians are seen as these idealistic types and these dark forces on the outside are trying to extract leverage and, and get benefits from them. The reality is it's more like extortion, right? I mean, these members of Congress that are on these committees, they know who to go to. If you're on energy and commerce, you go to big oil, you go to the renewable energy companies and say, hey, you know, we're considering this legislation. You might want to make some donations or bad things can happen. So it has a lot more to do with extortion in my mind than it has to do with outside forces trying to bribe members of Congress. And they have to do that again because they are on the hook to raise this much money because that's how they got on the committee in the first place. Yeah. It's a terrible cycle. Yeah. <laughs> it's how governments run. But it, it actually reminds me, there's a high school here in Tallahassee where we live that they have uh, two parking lots. And so on the, the top <laughs> parking lot, like the good parking lot, there's 50 spaces. And so how they do it is they give 47 of those spaces to the top 47 kids in the senior class. So it's merit-based, right? You get, right. you do well in school, you get a good parking spot for your senior year. Right. But three of the spots they sell <laughs> <laughs> or auction off for a charitable cause. Uh-huh. And so you got, you know, the top, you know, the yep. top brains and then three kids whose dads are lobbyists or doctors yep. or whatever, and they get to yeah. park up there. Yeah. And a hundred percent of this is what it reminds me of is like the person, I mean, you just said uh, Wall Street, right? Um, that's very important to the country. You'd like to think you have intelligent and um, serious people in charge of regulating that industry. But in fact, it's not true. Who's in charge of it are the people that get the most money from those industries. That's right. That's right. And those that have the ability to extract that money uh, from them. So, you know, keep this in mind. It's like the, the old mafia stories where the guy that shows up and says, hey, you need to pay your insurance or we'd hate to see a fire break out in your house. The members of Congress are the guys going to the businesses saying, hey, be careful, a fire might break out your house. But that guy works for somebody, right? And they work for the political parties and for the caucuses that have put them in those positions of responsibility. That's how extortion works. So the problem with this is that uh, it's actually now fundamentally changed the way our government works because it's now not actually representative government, right? It's not about people in Congress responding to needs of constituents, which is how I think our founding fathers intended to be. Mm-hmm. It's our founding fathers meet, it's our, it's our members of Congress meeting with lobbyists over these industries so they can raise money. It's, they actually changed the calendar of Congress so they could spend more time raising money, didn't they? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, people wonder why do they only work three days a week? <laughs> Uh, well, you know, the argument is, is that it's so they can go back and see their constituents. Yeah, right. It's because it makes it easier for them to do fundraising. Um, and there are rules that you can't, you know, make phone calls and raise money while you are actually on the house floor. Easy fix. Yeah, easy <laughs> fix. We just we just change the calendar. We shorten the days. We have, quote unquote, no work days that allow us to raise the money. And And you're right. I mean, the problem with this is. Who do they end up representing? We have a representative form of government. Who do they represent? Do they represent their constituents back in their district or do they represent the people that they are trying to raise money from? Um, and that I think is the, the, uh, you know, the huge part of the problem. And it's not healthy. Uh, members of Congress that we've interviewed say they spend probably 75 to 80% of their time looking at policy. No, they spend 75 to 80% of their time raising money. That leaves 20% of their time to actually, oh, I don't know, read some bills, 
uh, and see what legislation actually says and what it's supposed to amount to. They simply take the word of their leaders to do so. Pelosi was famous for this. She even verbalized it, um, you know, when she said, you know, you'll know what's in it. You know, once you vote for it, you'll know what's in it. Right. And uh, and that kind of epitomizes this reality of of focusing on raising money in these party dues. So to your point, um, members of Congress have actually said that they're told by campaign professionals that they should spend 20 to 30 hours a week raising money. Uh, and so to do that, they've changed the schedule. You said three days a week. Yeah. I didn't realize this, but yeah, lawmakers generally arrive, I guess, like a Monday nights in Washington, yeah. D.C. Yeah. You go to a dinner, possibly with a lobbyist, and then no. uh, and then you leave on Thursday. So you're basically there, like yeah. Monday, you're there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And so, yeah, it's a sustainable lifestyle for your family. But it also, yeah, you're spending all this time raising money. And so it's so the pro- one problem is it's not representative government. Another problem is it's not transparent. This is key. We're big on transparency. Yeah. I mean, that's like it, it, one thing you got to give the party dues list. At least it's transparent. <laughs> at least they say we have a name and an amount of money that each person is supposed to have raised. But uh, one person, Paul Mitchell, representative from uh, Michigan, who retired from Congress, told CNN that he raised $800,000 for the NRCC over two and a half years but none of it shows up in campaign filings. How is that possible? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So remember, members of Congress, like Congressman Mitchell, has his own campaign committee. So if a $2,000 check or a $5,000 political action committee donation flows into his campaign, that gets reported by the Federal Election Commission. But if Congressman Mitchell or somebody else goes to the same donor and says, I need you to make a donation to the Republican Congressional Committee because I'm on this committee in Congress and I need to meet my quota and raise a million and a half dollars this year, that money goes to the Republican Committee, but there's no fingerprints on it. You don't know that it was Congressman Mitchell or somebody else that actually raised that money for them. So people aren't aware of who may be making promises for that money, uh, who may be offering to introduce legislation because of that money. And transparency, I think, is so important. We talk about this all the time because there aren't always easy solutions to these things. I mean, if you were to say, well, we're going to ban you know, donations to campaigns, then you've got government funding of elections. We can't have that. That would be manipulated. That would be controlled. So Oftentimes, the best solution is transparency so people can see if you're, you know, sitting in a congressional district or in a state and you're supposed to vote for a senator, you can see who's he getting money from, how much money is he getting, who's who might have influence over him. With this kind of arrangement, you have no idea because the money shows up unannounced. You have no idea who's raising money or who's giving money in those types of environments. You also have no idea how policy is actually shaped. I think that's mm-hmm. the other element of the transparency that's gone completely missing because they actually, as a, as a result of them meeting less, right? They spend less time in Washington, D.C. than the House committees and the Senate committees actually also spend less time meeting. Uh, some stats that we pulled back in 2006, some House committee members met a total of, or all the House committees met a total of four. 449 times to hear policy, hear suggestions on how to sh- actually craft legislation. In the Senate, they met 252 times. Right. So, you know, they're meeting. Yeah. And they're going over stuff. Hey, what do you think about this? Oh, that's a bad idea or whatever. And then that's dropped. In the House, it's down to 254. So almost half. <laughs> right. In the right. Senate, it went from 252 meetings to 69 meetings. Right. So they just don't meet anymore. No. They talk. And this is, again, when they had all the fight over Kevin McCarthy and all the members of the House Freedom Caucus said, why would we do this? Because we... This is what they mean. Yeah. We're not actually here to meet. We're not actually here to govern. 
uh, we're here to be told when to show up and when to vote. And that's not what they signed up for. Yeah, no, no, that's that's right. And, and you know, this is the inherent problem. They are incentivized to focus on raising money and meeting with special interests rather than actually doing legislative work. Serious legislative work, dare I say it, doesn't pay. Right. Fundraising pays. And so the question is, so what do we do about this? And we we've proposed solutions in the past. One of them is we look to the states, you know, the state of Florida where we are. Um, other states have very simple rules. It's not going to fix everything. It's not going to solve everything. But in the state of Florida, the legislature meets for what, three months? Uh, yeah, two months. Two months. Two months out of the year. Uh, of course, Congress isn't going to do that. But And there's, and there's committee weeks and things. But, yeah, yeah com- but, but two weeks it for one shot. Yeah. yeah. And, and in Florida, state legislators, when the legislature's in session, cannot raise money. No, period. Period. No, period. Two months, no yeah. raising money. If somebody sends you money, you send it back. You cannot accept and you cannot solicit donations when the legislature's in session. Now, imagine if Congress did that. Get, by the way, guess who loves this idea? Who? The special interests, because they're like, dude, for two months, we don't have to write a check. <laughs> right, we, we are exactly. off the hook. Exactly. These guys, these, these wandering hordes are not going to come extract money from us. But here's what I think would happen if you did this at the national level. And again, I'm not saying this solves every single problem. But first of all, we'd probably have shorter congressional sessions, right? They, they, they extend them because it's kind of like the extortion model, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's always the threat of, hey, we may actually burn down your, your building because we could pass laws that damage you. So you better cater us and give us what you want. If the legislature is not in session, there's less of a fear that businesses and, and uh, wealthy interests have that that might happen. So they want to have these longer sessions where nothing gets done because it allows them to maximize and extract more money. So we'd have sort shorter sessions and you wouldn't have this kind of extortion uh, market. I think that's one reform that we could, we could make that w- would at least improve the situation a little bit. I love your quote that guys go to Washington DC as these uh, freshman lawmakers and they say, oh, man, that's so gross. And they say it looks like a cesspool. Right. And then you let them be there for a couple of years. And then they're like, this is a hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think to the point, yeah. like from the outside, the idea that you can raise money from the very people you literally just had a committee hearing with, these you right. might be testifying before thing, that you can raise money. Someone can write you a check the day before you cast a vote on an issue yeah. that impacts their industry is insane. No, it and is corrupt. Yeah. yeah, but it's also reality. Yeah, no, there's we in in uh, the book extortion. Actually, we did an interview with the head of Shell Oil, uh, and he described how he had gone th- before a congressional committee, um, and Maxine Waters was was railing. This is when gas prices were really high, and she was railing against the energy industry, saying we may have to nationalize you guys because it's outrageous the prices that you were charging. And according to the CEO of Shell Oil, right after the meeting, Maxine Waters came up and said, "Hey." Maybe you could organize a fundraiser for me. <laughs> so on the one hand, she's threatening to nationalize. That's what extortion looks like. Uh, and that is very common. And it's a massive problem. And as we move towards the speaker's house, we don't know who the speaker is going to be as we're doing this podcast, but realize that this is going to be part of the equation. My hope is whether it's Scalise, uh, whether it's Jim Jordan, whoever it might be, that we can start to break this cycle, recognizing you got to raise money. But this is not the way to do it because that ends up driving everything. That's literally, by the way, what you, what you just described is how I got to the front of the line in the airport in Haiti one time. Like it just, <laughs> everybody's standing around and then yeah. here comes the guy is like, by the way, you know, 
there's a way out of this. And right. so, of course, you give some money to get out to the front of the line. It's like it's insane to think that the way we craft policy that shapes our country and shapes all the various industries is also not unlike the business model of third world countries at various airports and elsewhere. Yeah. U.S. Congress, Haitian airport. Checks out. More in common than you think. Checks out. <laughs> Well, we appreciate you as always joining us on this podcast. You can find more information about the research we're doing at thedrilldown.com. And you can find this podcast wherever fine podcasts are broadcast. Uh, We look forward to talking with you next time. Until then, thank you. Thank you.